Paceline is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. And you and I are both doing a little more of the fitting right now, right? <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, yeah, I'm not doing a lot of riding right now. Uh having a rotator cuffed or uncuffed my rotator or Ooh. whatever. Uh, I'm riding a little bit, but uh, I have what uh, my friend Chapman refers to as shoulder capital. Uh, I can spend a little bit, but then I got to be conservative for a while and store some more up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was mostly referring to the fact that like you're traveling later this week and I'm traveling later this week. Ah, but, yes. You know, I'm 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 happy to hear about your maladies. Uh you <laughs> you do that with a surprising recurrence. You I hurt myself? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you you come in for a steady diet of injury. Well, I I am not I guess willing to accept not riding certain things. So I did my current injury on a six by six skinny. Uh-huh. So it ran up to about 45 degrees and down to 45 degrees. And I, it was, I don't know, I skittered off the top of it and went over the bars. It's a thing. I was joking to my friend, uh, Jonathan, who I think, you know, who I ride with quite a bit. I was joking with him. I said, you know, nine times out of 10, I've got that, that, that skinny in my pocket, but I think this was probably my 10th time over it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, statistics are a funny thing. They really they, are. They are. They will catch up with you. But I yeah. mean, generally speaking, I want to ride the most technical things that I can, uh, which means that I'm often sort of in harm's way or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I have been avoiding all of the skinnies of late, and by of late, I mean like the last three years. Uh, I've been going, I've been seeking them out. Uh, I've been sessioning, this one spot we go has this, uh, it's, it's a, a little bit like um, rock climbers have a project. I've got a little project up there that's like a, it's like a, a very steep, there's no run into it. So you're basically lifting about as high as you can onto a rock that immediately turns into a skinny that bridges across to a much larger rock. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably like a five foot steep roll off of that rock. And I've been working on the entry to that thing. I've made it across this. I made it up and onto the skinny and across to the big rock. But uh yeah, I don't know. Uh, these things, this is what turns me on. Like, this is kind of why I get up in the morning. Stuff like mm -hmm. that, te real technical, whatever stuff. I don't pretend to be good at it, but it is what inspires me. And I think the day that I hurt myself, maybe you'll uh, relate to this. I can, I could tell that I was a little too hyped. I was a little bit too eager to ride the hard stuff. Uh-huh. And I think when you're too eager, uh, maybe you're not in the right mindset. Like it requires a little more patience um, to do right. Well, yeah. So, so there's, I got this and then there's hold my beer. And yeah, sometimes hold my beer is like exactly the moment you really should keep the beer in your hand. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And the morning I hurt myself, I was sort of like off the front and like taking on all comers. Like, here comes another one. Here's another big rock with a drop. 
Uh, and I was just too fired up for it. I think, um, mm. I, but, it, it's a thing. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't like to be hurt, but I think as I try to cult, cultivate that kind of 12 year old mindset where I'm playing and I'm trying to do rad stuff and just, you know, there's, there's a risk reward ratio. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of rewards and occasionally. Yeah. There's a balance I, to be addressed. Yeah. I don't want to give up all risk, but, um, I, I'm going for lower consequence risk. Um, yeah, well, this was a big concern about the brittleness of my bones. Yeah. Mine are very brittle. It's a fact. Um, this was a big motivator. You and I have talked about it so much. This was a big motivator of switching to flat pedals and kind of getting the bike handling of, uh, of a flat pedal ride more dialed in, Mm -hmm. Uh, because mm-hmm. genuinely I can go into more of the sort of high risk, high tech situations and, and bail gracefully. Like I was sessioning that rock I was telling you about before, or this pair of rocks. And Jonathan was like, you're bailing out of these really gracefully. Like when you don't make it, you're, you're jumping out, you're running out, you're doing this stuff that you, you couldn't do clipped in. And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. you know, this was a big motivation. I wanted to ride more challenging slightly scarier things with a little more confidence that i could escape mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not for everyone it's not for everyone and i i'm nursing a, a more than a f- couple injuries based on uh <laughs> swift meetings with the earth so you know and i'm still completely locked in yeah uh, it, ride your own ride. I'm not yucking your yum. Yep. Keep going. Yep. Buy an ice cream after. Yeah. It'll be great. Alrighty. Why don't you lead us in? <laughs> All right. Today, I want to talk about pro cycling and how important it may be to your cycling life. Uh, because whether you follow it or not, it's having an impact on what you're riding. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about whether that's mostly positive or mostly negative, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> This was another question, as I believe yours was. This was another, uh, this is another idea from our, um, our producer at large, John in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's take the most evolved scenario with pro racing. The one where you follow the races, maybe you have a favorite rider or a favorite team. Uh-huh. I can tell you that in the years when I paid the most attention to the pros, I also rode the most miles. Hmm. Hmm. In my admittedly simple mind, I I was also living the life. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, I wasn't racing uh, my bike up Alps and down Pyrenees, but I was adopt. I was trying to adopt their habits. I was sort of posing as a pseudo roller and generally acting like Dennis Christopher and breaking away. You know, there was a lot of romance to it, and I was I was leaning in and and. Uh, you know, I was trying to join a subculture that I was learning about, but that was a million miles away and that actually I had no business in. But that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. For me, I experienced that as as a par- fairly positive thing. Think think of it as LARPing for the avid avid cyclist. Oh, yeah. Uh, guilty as charged. Uh-huh. Right? Yep. Yeah, I derived an awful lot of motivation from that little fantasy, and I suspect I was not alone. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're not interested or only pay passive attention to pro racing when it comes across your radar. Even then, it's likely the bike you're riding was influenced by the bikes the pros ride. That Mm -hmm. makes sense, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's not entirely, you're not riding a pro bike, but a lot of the tech they employ to squeeze seconds out of every effort, uh, uh, which makes little to no difference for you, that tech trickles down and uh, exists in your bicycle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, the UCI, which has put a lot of effort into defining what a bike is and the bike companies who devote resources to making the pros faster, they're more or less deciding what bikes we all get to ride. Most of the time, our bikes are watered down versions of pro bikes. Um, 
The promises of greater speed are usually based on things that do pay off for pros, like aerodynamics, but are less dispositive for those those of us who don't average 18 miles per hour or better. I'm not saying it makes no difference. It just makes less. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fair. So none of that, I think, is an argument for paying attention to pro racing, but it does kind of explain the connection between what goes on mainly on the roads of Europe and what happens on the streets of Minneapolis and Albuquerque. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then there are some bad things trickling down from the Euro Peloton. I, it'd be easy to talk about doping right now, but most mature, adult, mature adults know they're not supposed to engage in oxygen vector doping or elective blood transfusions. So I don't think that's necessarily a problem. There are plenty of guys in our socioeconomic uh, demographic who are going to anti-aging doctors. That's a thing. Sure, but I'd say two things about it. Number one, they're not getting the results uh, that you get from having a 59% hematocrit level. Uh, And Mm. also, okay, maybe they're going to win some Masters or whatever, but like, who cares? This is like tilting. This is like Dorian Gray tilting at windmills uh, to mix (laughs) some tragic (laughs) metaphors for you. Wait, let me go get my ninja bullet. Yes, that's right. Um, what concerns me much more uh, are the bad bike fit habits of some of the pro riders. Oh, um, gosh, yeah. The whole slam that stem episode in amateur bike fit came from the pros. And that was pretty dumb. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of folks with bad backs making their problems worse. Uh, but also tall riders on tiny bikes. You see that in the pro peloton quite a bit. You see some pretty absurd riding positions. Um, Try watching the Tour de France uh, sometimes with a bike fitter. Um, (laughs) They're just losing it the whole time. Yes. Yep. Um, My sense is that some of this has gotten better. And let me say about Slam That Stem, that even if you can, in your current physical incarnation, hold that position, it gives you nowhere to go. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Say you have a back injury, say you get less flexible, which we all do over time, entropy mm-hmm. being consistent and all. Um, it just gives you nowhere to go. It sort of traps you in a dumb bike. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I still think a lot of the pros uh, look like the proverbial dog's breakfast on their bikes, and, and we shouldn't be copying their positions mostly. Um, mm-hmm. One of the best things about bike riding, though, is that no one can tell you how to do it. It's a freedom machine. Sure. Mm-hmm. There are professionals, but a bike isn't at root that different from a yo-yo. <clears throat> the pros can do things you and I can't, but that doesn't mean we're not having fun. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, have, has you, would you say your riding has suffered at all since you stopped paying attention to, to the pro racing? Well, we would have to uh, settle on a definition of suffering. Um, uh, On one hand, no, I suffer a lot less because I'm not doing uh, 15 and 18 hour weeks anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to be a responsible father. uh, So that kind of got in the way. Um, There's also the fact that... uh, while my fit was pretty good, it was still influenced by slam that stem. And I spent an awful lot of years, uh, adopting bike positions in bike reviews based on fit philosophies of different people, uh, different bike companies usually. Um, and, um, that had a direct relationship with me ending up with spinal stenosis and pinched nerves in my spine that now limit my ability to do uh, longer road rides on any sort of fit. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there are some very distinct uh, negative consequences to, to slam that stem. Sure. Um, uh, so, you know, there's that. Yeah, I'm not I I'm not going out and trying to, you know, do, you know, 32 miles an hour in a group. Um uh 
And so there are a lot fewer days that I get off the bike dissatisfied with my performance. I'm going out to enjoy myself. When I get on a bike, it's not because I need to accomplish something anymore. I'm going out because this is my time for me. And I owe no one anything other than my good time. Um, you know, uh, to the degree that I might owe somebody something, I owe myself that good time so that when I get off the bike, there's a, a highly decreased opportunity uh, or, or causation for me to be a jerk. <laughs> yes. You know? Uh, yeah. One interesting thing I want to note about, you know, bikes and technology and racing and all that, you know, you could be some, you know, some billionaire uh, set up in Sweden somewhere. And if you wanted to buy um, an F1 car, you, you can't you can't just go out and do that. You could buy an F1 team if you're a billionaire. Sure. Um but, you know, the the average guy with seven figures in his bank account looking to burn a hole in something can't go out and buy, you know, something fancier than a Ferrari that at least 180 other people are going to get. Um, we can buy exactly the bike that whoever is racing right now. That is simply not the case in an awful lot of uh, motorsport. Um, a friend of mine who was a motorcycle racer, uh, one day he was a privateer and he had a tire sponsor. And one day, one of the sponsored guys, uh, was sick and couldn't race. And so they gave him, uh, the team guys tires and he got eighth that day, his best finish ever. And he realized, well, the tires made the difference. He was doing things on his motorcycle that he had been unable to do ever before. And that was when like, oh, Okay, I'm 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 done. I I've seen I've seen what the situation is here. I simply mm. can't get the parts to turn in the performance that I am capable of. And that just burst his bubble right there. Well, you and I can buy the same Michelin's or whatever that anybody's riding. We can buy Durace. There's increasingly less reason to do so. Um, you know, and with the state of Campagnolo's current stuff, um, I would argue that it's kind of dumb to, um, so, you know, we have that ability to, to do that. Also weirder still is if you're on, um, you know, one of the lower tier pro teams, you know, like say a domestic American team, there's a good chance, John, that you're riding a bike that's nicer than what they are on. <laughs> You know, a lot of those guys uh, years ago when there was still a distinct difference between Dura Ace and Altegra, you know, these these pros were were showing up, uh, you know, with bikes with with Altegra on them and, you know, aluminum rims and no aero equipment and, you know, uh, a frame that was all intermediate modulus carbon fiber because it was more likely to survive a crash. Mm. Uh, so. The state of cycling and technology and what you and I can go out and ride is actually a little weird. Um, there's a, 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 a certain difference of proportion than you see in like motorsport. Uh, and I find that really weird and sort of exciting, but also a, a little disorienting. It, it is. Um, I would sort of liken it to. So I, I have sold custom bikes over some period of years and um, the builder I worked for offered a range of bikes and one of them was the, the very lightest. <laughs> and it was also the most expensive and it was the most expensive because the most work went into making it the lightest. <laughs> and a lot of people with the dollars would say, well, I want that one because it's the lightest. Well, <laughs> You know, for a lot of them, actually, that's not the best bike for you. And there are mm -hmm. reasons because there's a there's a inverse relationship between lightness and stiffness. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and if you weigh 200 pounds, uh, the super light thing isn't going to help you uh, in terms of handling road feel, etc. So so and I think this is that sort of 
in a nutshell, what I see with pro racing technology generally, once it trickles out to the masses, it's like, yeah, you, you, that is available to you and you can buy that with the money that you have, but that does not at all mean it's a good bike for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there was, um, Oh, I'm trying to remember who, which brand it was. I can see the bike right now and I just can't think of the brand. Uh, one of the Germans, not Canyon. Anyway, uh, I don't know, uh, eight or 10 years ago, uh, I reviewed one of their bikes and it was their stiffest road frame mm. and coming away from a stoplight or a stop sign, what that bike had, you know, in terms of uh, stiffness was noticeable. It was distinct. I didn't ever want to be on that bike for longer than an hour. Right. I was having uh, this conversation with some folks at a bike shop last week. We were talking about, and you and I brought this up on a recent show as well, um, rotational weight. Uh-huh. And the thing with rotational weight, what you just said about accelerating from a stop for example, Uh if you have a very light wheel, a very light and stiff wheel, and you accelerate away from a stop, um, you have a a sense of like, oh, this is a rocket ship. This is fast. It gives you this great feedback. Yep. And then you think, well, this bike is fast. Well, actually, um, a a wheel is like a power storage system. So you spin up whatever weight is there. And then when you stop pedaling, that weight spins down and a heavier wheel will take longer to spin down. I.e. it has more momentum than a lighter wheel. Yep. Um, But when you are decelerating in that way, you don't have the sense of you don't perceive the difference between the lighter and the heavier in that scenario yeah you you only have it accelerating so there's this misperception that oh this thing is faster or more efficient or faster well actually no you're faster here and you're slower here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and those things sort of cancel themselves out the one sort of variable there is aerodynamics which is very real especially with wheels but it's a good point about uh, not only is the the thing that the that the pros race maybe not the best for you. Um, it's that you also might not actually be able to trust your perceptions on that bike. Yeah, yeah. It will tell uh, you some there's lies. A level, there's a level of sensitivity there that. Uh, isn't really suitable to absolutely everyone. Um, right. You know, years ago, I can remember uh, talking with a, a woman friend of mine who was in the market for a new road bike. And I said, uh, go check out the specialized Amira, which is uh, the women's specific version of the tarmac. And she was like, really? Everybody's telling me to get a tarmac. You know, they say it's stiffer. Like, well, how much do you weigh? She's like, oh, 125. Um, and I said, well, the Amir is made for you. It's made for your proportions. There's a little less carbon fiber in it. So it's going to be lighter, but there's less carbon fiber in it because you don't weigh what I do. You know, I've got four, uh, at that point I had, I don't know, 30, 35 pounds on her. Um, you know, it's a more appropriate bike for you. It was made for you by a bunch of people who are really very, very smart about making bikes. Um, and she went out and test rode it and she was like, oh my gosh, you were right. Um, I'm like, well, I'm, it's not so much that I'm right. It's that I pay attention to what these very smart people are, are really working very hard on. Right. Uh, there are bikes that are appropriate to us. If you were to look at a Fuji catalog from 1988, um, they had... I don't know, six different road bikes and they were each at different price points. It was basically all the same bike, just with different parts. There, there wasn't much differentiation. And I mentioned that because like back then a road bike needed to be kind of versatile. You know, you needed to be able to put uh, a rack and panniers on it. You needed to be able to put fenders on it. Uh, If you were doing commuting, you needed to be able to get a 32 in there so that you could commute, you know, over all the rough roads and whatnot. 
And then for a while, we were so focused on producing really high-end road bikes, we kind of forgot what all-purpose was about. And that didn't that didn't turn around until Mike Sinyard saw a Custom Seven with a longer head tube and said, "We're gonna we're gonna make a bike called the Roubaix." Actually, I think the name came later, but he said, "We're gonna make something with a longer uh, head tube," because when he saw it, he was reminded of their old touring bike, uh, the Sequoia. People who still own a Sequoia from the 1980s swear by it. It was a really, really nice bike, Um, but it was not aggressive in any way, shape or form. It was a light touring bike and the Roubaix uh, was pretty heavily influenced by a that seven that one of their employees had and what the Sequoia was. It was a carbon fiber version of a light touring bike uh, without any, uh, any brazons to, to carry stuff. And that's what initiated all these kind of grand touring bikes. Uh, the, you know, the, the more upright positioned ones. And for the great majority of us who can't kiss our knees, it's the more appropriate bike. It is. It is. I think, I, I, I think if I could, and we've sort of um, we've sort of detoured into a whole thing about bike design uh, here. Um, but if I could if I could get one thing across to people, it's that any bike that talks about one characteristic, oh, it's the lightest or oh, it's the stiffest. Like they've turned one. They've slid one of the sliders all the way over uh-huh. and then ignored all of the other characteristics of the bike. A good bike is has a balanced design. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's not trying to be just one thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're if they're, you're a pro and you're raised to, to kind of bring it full circle, if you're a pro and you're trying to race a, a time trial in certain conditions, OK, you're going to have a bike that's turned up to 11 on on weight and aerodynamics, but actually more aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of us who even even those of us who are, are racing like you need a balanced bike. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, one final data point. I'll share that, you know, just for people to kind of tuck away and think about a heavy set of wheels on a descent feels incredible. If you ever want to feel <laughs> like you're descending on rails and that you can do no wrong at a turn, put a heavy set of wheels on your bike. Just yeah. give it a try. Um, yeah. I'll never forget having trained on what was a relatively heavy, heavy set of wheels um, for weeks and weeks and weeks, getting ready for this really, uh, hilly road race. Um, it was going to be 50 miles, 5,000 feet. Um, and the day of the road race, uh, I got out my tubulars, uh, my Mavic, uh, helium tubulars, Uh, that wheel set shaved like two pounds off of, you know, what the other wheel set was very light. And I entered the first turn and I couldn't tell what the front wheel was going to do because it was willing to go anywhere because there wasn't enough rotating mass. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, this is not going to end well because uh, <laughs> I'm going to be all over my brakes in every turn. Um, yeah. Eventually, I settled into the feel, but it was there was so much difference in weight between one wheel set and the other that it actually threw off the handling for, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles. Yeah. yeah, no, I buy that completely. And I, I hear people who, you know, I do a bunch of work and research in the wheel field. Um, and a lot of folks will say, oh, well, I need lighter wheels. I need lighter wheels. Aerodynamics of your wheels are much more important than the weight. Yep. Um, even a, a wheel that's 500 grams heavier, if it if it is well uh, mated aerodynamically to its tire uh, and has a good uh, aerodynamic shape, it's going to make zero. Those 500 grams are going to make zero difference to your speed. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I would rather a heavier wheel if the bearings are faster. That oh too. yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Alrighty. Uh, we're going to take a little break, uh, for our sponsor Shimano and we will be right back. The Paceline is underwritten by Shimano North America. That means they help us pay for software and hosting and the M&Ms in our dressing rooms. 
Shimano are also nice enough to let us talk about them in our own voices and from our own experiences. For example, I did a lot of research on Shimano road wheels when I was putting together complete bike packages when I was at 7 Cycles. We turn to Shimano wheels because they're rock solid, affordable, and readily available. The wheel market is full of fantastic options. Shimano's wheels often fly under the radar. You should really check them out. They have killer carbon fiber wheels at the 105 level now, the C32 and C46, and of course if you're shooting for the stars, you can get the C36 and C50 at Altegra and Dura Ace levels. See them all at road.shimano.com. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What are you pulling this week? All right, so uh, I've got a listener question, and it's a fun one. Uh, it's uh, it's directed to MFA Patrick, which I, I guess speaks to my history as a poet or something. I don't, uh, I'm guessing here. Can you talk about how a ride has a story arc like, well, a story, a beginning, a protagonist, an antagonist? and a resolution, particularly noticeable on a spicy group road ride. Um, and I'll clarify that, yeah, I, I was trained as a poet, not a fiction writer, but in in my when I have spare time, I am writing fiction. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm just going to put out there before you start that on a spicy road ride, from my perspective, everyone else is an antagonist. That is, that is a reasonable, yes, yes. And my legs also are antagonists in that. I am partially also my own antagonist, but go, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah, this is so very true. Uh, and for proof, I think we don't need to look any further than what happens when we get back to the coffee shop on a weekend group ride. What do we do when we're in line for coffee? We talk about what happened on the ride. Who made the big moves? Who made us suffer? Who blew apart badly? Who was stealthy? Uh, there's usually one rider who can be singled out as being the animating force for that particular rider. One rider who really stands out that day, but truer still is how a ride is like a big Hollywood movie with an ensemble cast. Because on most group rides, as the terrain changes, who is at the front usually evolves as well. Unless there's a cat one on the ride. In and, which and case, then you're just, yeah. Yeah, go home. Don't come yeah. here. Leave us yeah, alone. You're, <laughs> you're <laughs> spitting your own tongue out. Uh, as to the ride villain, that might be someone who never took a pull or braked too hard in a turn, but it also could be some driver who buzzed the group or a law enforcement officer who orders everyone to pull over with his PA. I wouldn't know anything about that last one. Right. Yeah. Um, or the CHP officer who almost uh, clipped my calf one time. With what? Car? Uh, a, a whole car. Oh. He, he was within about six inches of me. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I had all the verbs for him. Uh -huh. and, and none of them were uh, social. Sure. Yeah. Um. So here's one thing, though. There's always a jester on every ride. The fool. The fool can be played in different ways, okay? Of course, there's the clueless rider who thinks they've got watts to, watts to spare and then finds out the hard way that what they think strong is and what strong actually are are quite different. Uh, the jester can also be the rider who makes the suicide move knowing full well it won't work, but they do it just to make others suffer. Um, I may have deliberately played the gesture a number of occasions. I was a fond of, I was fond of attacking where you don't attack. Uh, and I'm not talking about anything truly stupid or insipid like running lights. I'm talking about like attacking at the top of a hill when everyone else is recovering from the hill. Uh, one easy way to tell who the gesture for that ride is just requires a bit of listening. When you hear someone's last name preceded by an F-bomb, that, dear sirs, is the gesture. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing, though, is that in our retelling, it's a postmodern story. That is, we don't, rec we don't recount the ride from beginning to end for the most part. 
we start at the point where we were hurting most, you know, mm. so postmodern stories jump right into the action, you know, kaboom, gunshot. Um, and then it's like, well, wait, how did we get here? Well, don't you remember how when we wrote, when we were writing out of Malaga Cove, there was that one little move and, you know, it got strung out in single file and everything. And look, I was just, I was on Billy's wheel. I didn't know what was going on. Yep. Um, I'm approaching this with a certain assumption. Okay. Um, that is, I believe in talking about how others made me hurt. Uh, if for some reason I made someone else suffer, I wait for someone else to bring it up. I was raised to have some class, um, (laughs) to be a gentleman, if not a Southern gentleman. And of course I've got to leave it to others to decide if I possess any class um, but I can tell you that if I bring up some move on my part, what follows is a self-deprecating deconstruction of my particular brand of foolhardiness. Yeah, you There's, can't be the hero of your own story. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're already the protagonist. Yeah, yeah. You know, yep. it's, it, every protagonist in a story has a mentor. Mm. Right? You've always got to have the mentor. Mm. Um. And the mentor in a lot of ways is, is kind of the hero, um, you know, from, from the protagonist standpoint, sure. they're simply doing the thing that needs to be done. Um, now there's an allowance here to have someone bring up some of some exploit of yours. And that gives you permission to talk about your experience. Um, I looked back, there was nobody there and I thought, Oh my God, I'm so screwed. Sure. Not, not, I am a badass. It will always be self-deprecating unless you're that guy. Right. Right. Um, and that's a different sort of gesture at that point. Yes. Uh, the other thing about the story arc, uh, is how a standard story arc begins with a view of life before the animating event. Things are calm. It's an ordinary day. And then there's chaos. And the chaos goes through several acts and uh, culminates in some sort of blowout. In script writing, it's called the all is lost, which tends to coincide for me with me looking up and saying to myself, I am so screwed. (laughs) And at the end of the ride, we're going easy again, out of the big chain ring, we're with friends, just like the end of a story where all is calm and we are seeing the hero in their new normal. What did I leave out? Um, I I think you did a pretty good job. I would say that um, while we are normally the protagonist in our own Mm -hmm. experiences, I I might I wonder if we're not also our own antihero. In Mm. other words, Mm. we reach the Mm -hmm. end. We reach the end and we see that we weren't the hero, that we were full of flaws uh, uh-huh. but that we suffered nobly and we came through in the end, yeah. uh, which is sort of the classic anti-hero. And if you can't see yourself that way, I think you probably don't stay at stick at it. Yeah. Um, you know, one theory of storytelling is that, you know, in, in kind of first person, uh, postmodern stories, it, it, the, the, the storyteller is the recording witness. Um, uh, Gatsby's sidekick. Um, 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 help me out here. I can't think of his name. Uh, you know, so he tells the cautionary tale of the great Gatsby. He's there to see all the significant moves of his rise and downfall. And it didn't occur to me until you were just saying this. But the thing that I always liked to say about the really hard group rides was, I don't need to be in the fast move, that last big attack. I don't need to be there. I just want to be close enough to see it happen. (laughs) I want to be fit enough to be there to say, oh, yeah, you know, Dave took off. And I thought, well, that's the move, Um, you know, and it it leaves you in a very comfortable position where you can talk about things with authority. You saw all the stuff. You did all the same suffering. Um, but you don't have to admit that you're not a badass. You, you're just, you're there. You're along for the ride. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the it's, humility of the antihero. I hope. Uh, uh, 
if not, it's it's the place that I still like to be, even though I don't have that kind of fitness anymore. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, let's move on to Paceline Picks. What do you have? Um, so today I'm considering the uh, the Gore Fernflow Liner Shorts Plus. I'm not sure what the plus Fernflow? is about. Fernflow. I, I don't care about the plus. Tell me about Fernflow. I wish that I could tell you about Fernflow. Um, I, I, I'm going to guess that all the other names in the whole universe of names were taken. So they went with Fernflow. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the good folks at Gore reached out and asked me if I wanted to try them. And, um, most listeners will know how much energy I vote devote to thinking about gloves. Uh, but <laughs> liners are a growing source of interest. I wear them on the gravel bike. Uh, I've, I've sort of abandoned bibs for gravel riding. I want to wear liners. Don't know why. Um, I wear them on the mountain bike. Uh, I've gone away from pulling on bibs all the time. It just feels like a more casual approach. And liners are a big part of that. So, huh. um, Gore, as I said, Gorn sent me these. Gore, Gorn? They should consider a name change, Gorn. Uh, Gore sent me these Fernflow liners specifically for review, and I've just started wearing them, but I have to say straight out of the gate, they are they are immediately the best liners I own. Hmm. Hmm. They fit better, uh, they breathe better, and they stay put better than any I've worn yet. Now they are at a higher price point. So, you know, we have higher expectations of them, but I've tried a few sort of middle, middle market liners, I'd say. Um, and these, these are better than those. The pad is unobtrusive. Uh, I'm not looking for a ton of padding for my liner shorts. I just really want to take it. I want them to kind of take the edge off a long day in the saddle. Um, Mm -hmm. so these work well for me. And I'll tell you, Gore almost always impresses me with their bike clothing. It's a it's mm-hmm. a brand that is low on flash and style. I, I almost never see a Gore piece and think, oh, that's stylish. But from a quality <laughs> point of view. From a quality and I don't mean that they look bad, they don't look bad. Right. They, they're very right. neutral uh, stylistically. And I think from a quality point of view, they have few peers. Uh huh. Yeah, you're with me. They do a great job. Yeah, I no, I they really do a great am. job. They're they're kind of the business casual of cycling clothing. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, I respect them a lot. Um, so these are ninety dollars from Gore. Uh, there's a men's cut and a women's cut. I can't speak to the fit of the women's version, obviously, but I suspect it's just as good. Um, sizing is extra small through extra large. They could add a size or two, I think. Uh, a lot of the larger mountain bikers I know wouldn't fit in that XL. So what that's a thing to wearing? think about. What's that? What size do you wear? I wear a medium. Okay. Okay. So yeah, you, you're not a big guy and there are only two more sizes after you. That's right. I'm five nine one sixty. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot yeah. of people on the other side of that. Yeah, I think they should. Uh, I I I think this is a fantastic piece. I think they should consider an XXL, if not one one above that as well, because I do know a lot of uh, larger mountain bikers, and they want to be comfortable too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't speak that much to uh their bibs i've worn some and i have liked them uh what i can say though is that um their jackets and jerseys are very well cut there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's uh cut to more uh pro site uh style uh cut you know proportions Mm -hmm. um like castelli uh yeah yeah uh them them and some others who are even worse uh, <laughs> that way in terms of establishing what the proportions of your average American are. And I find Gore to be really good for someone who is, you know, a generally fit individual, but not, um, you know, it doesn't have an upper body that's vestigial. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I really like the proportions of of all of their pieces that I have worn so far. I've got a couple of jackets. One of my all-time favorite 
uh, windbreakers. Uh, at the, as a matter of fact, at this point, it's just falling apart. I need to get rid of it because it's like, like 14 years old. Um, but I've loved it because the cut is just so good. Um, you know, they got the, the torso, right. And the sleeve length, right. Yeah. They do a good job. They do liners. Huh? Yeah. Liners and uh, liners. And, uh, uh, for mountain biking, I've been wearing like canvas work shorts. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I can't, I just like the way they feel on the saddle. Um, they're sort of rugged and, uh, yeah, so it's liners and shorts for me. Huh? Okay, cool. Even on the um, gravel bike lately. And I find them cooler. Like a part of my, uh, bibs are warmer. And if I'm going to put something on top of the bib, you know how hot I run. So, oh, right. Yeah. I'm still wearing bibs. I'm also still shaving my legs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not going to yeah. justify your behavior to me, are you? <laughs> because I don't, those things don't make sense, but go ahead. <laughs> What's your pick this week? <laughs> okay. So last winter, um, i.e. when my birthday was, um, Jennifer helped my boys pick a birthday present for me. Um, I'm not sure to what degree she guided them versus they just picked something. She says they selected it. So they get the credit. Um, I think there was probably a certain, um, mentorship of this process. I sure. suspect, uh, but my present that they selected sat unused until a couple of weekends ago when I went to Wente and I thought, hey, these might be fun. The present was a product called Spoke Lights. It seems sometimes there is truth in advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spoke Light, I mean, it's this Chinese made thing. Um, it's a little plastic device with 32 LED lights and it's got a chip in it that allows it to run a program of 32 different patterns that change every four seconds armed with three AAA batteries. The packaging says it could be maximed to 20 hours when at work. Mm. Um, I love new verbs. Maximed. Have I said that? Yeah. Yeah. Maximed. Um, I, I love new verbs. I'm not sure how to conjugate that one just yet. Uh, I mean, obviously it begins with maxim, uh, moving right along. Unlike most blinking safety lights, if the wheel, uh, if the wheels stop spinning for a few minutes, the lights shut off. Uh, they are ideal for riding around a campground, say under a full moon. Uh, and as long as there's an audience, they come with a full assortment of chuckles, giggles, oohs, and ahs. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pair goes for $17.99. And I don't think I'll ever ride at night again without them. Um, they're just so dazzlingly entertaining. Uh, you can't help but look down at the fire road or trail or asphalt and just kind of, you got to check in and see what the lights are doing right now with 32 patterns. I don't have them all memorized. And so maybe not for our epileptic listeners, but, uh, I like the idea. Yeah. I I also like the name. I love that you've picked a product that has a name, which is Correct. Unlike, yeah, unlike Fernflow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's kind of the antithesis of that. Uh, just really straightforward. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, honestly, I can't say anything about their durability. I, I don't think they were in the business of durability. They were in the business of entertainment. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's easy enough to secure them and they, they go on and off very, very quickly, very easily. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's not enough whimsy in cycling, is there? No, very certainly not. Yeah. So for anyone who needs to make a a periodic vote for whimsy, I strongly endorse these. There will be a link in our show notes. Alrighty, buddy. That's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. You're headed to Western mass, my old stomping grounds. What are you doing there? Um, I'm gonna try to ride bikes as much as my body will allow. We're having a little family get together. Um, my family will enjoy me escaping, uh, for (laughs) periods of time. 
mm-hmm. but it's going to rain all week. So, you know, I don't know. We're going to, we'll see what happens. We'll take it as it comes. What are you up to? I'm headed off to Hawaii, as I mentioned oh, yes. previously. Um, we are staying in Waikiki because that's uh, most centrally located for most of the events surrounding my father's memorial. Uh, and um, I have I've picked out one climb that it looks like I can get to uh, with minimal life threat. Um, and so I may just uh, kind of head north out of Waikiki and get on that climb and maybe do a couple repeats if I'm dumb enough. Yep. Yeah. Well, so. for what it's worth, I think you're dumb enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time traveling with my number 22, um, which has been a critical piece of me actually writing the review of that bike. Uh, and so I'm I'm pretty excited by this piece of the adventure. I got it all packed up on Sunday um, and uh you know, I was actually a little concerned about getting it in the case because it's got a wider rear triangle spacing, you know, current through axle style. Yeah. Um, and every time you add a little more width to stuff and you got to fit it in the same size case, there's cause for some concern. Sure. Um, it was a slow process, but it it went really well. So um, uh, I'm I'm excited. And Lord knows I'm going to need a bike for some resets. Uh, this is not going to be an easy trip. No, we'll look forward to hearing about that upon your return. Yeah. Um, Alrighty. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we talked about today in the comments on the Cycling Independent. Uh, While you're there, would you consider maybe subscribing? We have $3, $5, and $10 options. That's monthly, as well as a tip jar for those who fear commitment. Also, we're not asking anybody to sign up for a whole subscription for the whole year. You can dose this uh, in a way that, uh, per our bank accounts, is pretty painless. Um, Your dollars do go directly into this podcast, as well as our other productions like Revolting with John and Stevel and Long Way Home. Um, So there are no shareholders that we are beholden to. Thank heaven. Uh, And we do need your help to keep doing what we do. Okay, until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.